there. Welcome to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am, as always, your gracious and grateful host. So I was thinking about this this week, and I realized that since this podcast is about storytelling, essentially, that I would tell the tale of how this podcast began. Settle in, kids. Gather around the campfire and get out the s'mores. Here we go. I am a big fan of stories. Storytelling saved my life. Saved my life. Um, I went through some things and I had to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And I realized that I was basically telling stories of what I went through. And then I went backwards and started remembering stories of other things and stories when I was a kid and then remembered that they're all basically stories. So I decided about uh, nine months ago to start my own podcast, not this one. It's called Weird Tales with Jeff Watson or Weird Tales with me, Jeff Watson, like I do it on a goddamn show. You can find it also on your streaming services as well. Nobody listened to it. It's fine. It wasn't intended really for anyone but a small audience, but ultimately for me. I tell stories about loss. I tell stories about addiction. I talk, tell stories about grace. I tell stories about Neil Young. I tell stories about me uh, harmonizing with an Everly brother at an olive garden uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. It was a wild thing. So I've had a really weird life. Beautiful and tragic, but here we are. So I decided to put that all down on this podcast, and I've been doing about one episode maybe every two, three months when I feel like it, um, but it was a way to get out a lot of these feelings and to tell them in narrative form, to tell them in beginning and a middle and an end, and that helped, it continues to help me, um, and as my burgeoning work as a therapist, it's about telling stories about your experiences and telling stories about your trauma, so... At any rate, I got this other thing. You can go listen to it. It's basically this for like an hour, actually 45, eh, about 30 minutes actually, come to think of it. It's a small investment. It's free. <laughs> I'm plugging my own show. <laughs> it was a little strange. At any rate, so let's all go way back about 10 years ago, way back. So there's a guy named Michael Lee Simpson, who I know, meet, I meet the guy, and we start talking about movies immediately, and he's just a huge dork like I am, and... I'm reading his screen, uh, some of his scripts, and they're really good, and some of his early work. And so we kind of drift apart, no big deal. Things happen that way. And then about six months ago, I get this call from him, and he says, Hey, I can. Uh, I, I heard your podcast, the, uh, the Weird Tales uh, thing. I have a lot of people uh, in my world that I can get you to speak to in the Hollywood industry. And Michael is a writer for like big trade magazines, like Backstage and we're in variety now, and he's just, he's everywhere. He's the man, so he has access to all these people. So, of course, I said, sure, I guess. I don't know what this even means, but okay. So we kind of cobbled this thing together, and we came up with this idea of inspired minds and talking to people about inspiration, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And now you know the story. So um, this next guy that I talked to, Named Richard Potter. Oh my God, this guy and I are like BFFs. I think we actually became best friends for life on this podcast. I don't know how you actually do that. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if there's like a something you got to sign, <laughs> some DocuSign thing. Regardless, it was fantastic. So this guy, he uh, he was previously a senior VP at Miramax, and he was the head of the story department 
uh, at Dimension Films, where he got the script called Scream from Kevin Williamson. And he'd be like, oh, my God, like, this has to be made, and you've got to be kidding me. And then he did Scream 2 and The Faculty and Nightwatch and Mimic. Big fan of Mimic, by the way. Go Mimic. And then he, like, developed all these legacy titles like Halloween and Hellraiser and Pinhead and The Highlander. There can only be one. So this is my guy. Um, and we just talked about so much stuff about, like, old films and Young Frankenstein and just blah, blah, blah. I think we talked about Young Frankenstein, or maybe that's actually just in my head. Whatever. We had a great time. And as always, I really, truly hope that you enjoy this as much as I did making it, because goddamn, it was fun. All right. Here comes the cool guy. Bye. Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet again another episode of the Inspired Minds podcast. I have the f- wonderful, fortunate uh, ability to speak to Mr. Richard Potter. Mr. Richard Potter, say hello to the dazzled throng. Hello, throng. Uh, well, everybody, so I want to ask well, not everybody, Mr. Richard Potter, I would like to ask you the first question that I always ask everybody on the show, and that is very simply, when you were younger, what was the first thing that you can remember that inspired you? Was it a song, book, horror movie? What do you got? It was the Beatles, a hundred percent the Beatles. I will always remember my mother had these records, and it was the album Rubber Soul. <gasps> Me too. Uh, yeah, she put on Rubber Soul one day, and I still remember sitting on the couch looking at the album cover. I remember the smell of the record. I mean, that's how strong of a memory it was, and hearing it and listening to that record all the way through. Um, she died when I was in high school, um, and I, to this day, I have her Beatles records, um, and I have that copy of Rubber Soul. And every time I see anywhere the cover of Rubber Soul in artwork, in an article or whatever, I am always brought back to the memory of hearing that album the first time. Wow. That record, man. I, it's funny, actually. You and I have very similar experience yeah. there. Um, my parents actually had help. Um, the record. And I was the same way though. I was like, what? And, you know, the, the, the harmonies really got me too on that band when I was younger. So there's just something about their sound, which is an odd thing to say. Um, I don't know how much the audience knows, but you are also a musician, but the Beatles don't have a sound. Um, the, if you listen to most bands, they have a particular sound throughout their entire career. The Beatles didn't have a sound. If you listen to Sgt. Pepper and you listen to Help, that other than their voices, that could be two different bands. Yeah. That's part of what makes them so great is that they are constantly evolving. But there's something about – it's not their sound. I don't know what the wor- right word is, that when you hear them, it's them. And the moment it lands for you – changes everything and for all the people who say oh the beatles are overrated you're wrong um uh, there's people do um i i have friends who say that and i'm like yeah every time they release anything to this day 60 years after they first broke in england because it's since it's 2022 right now and they broke there in what 62 anytime they release anything now it goes to number one no one else does that. Um, no one else has that kind of staying power where um, their albums constantly chart to this day. 
Um, every generation discovers them and then goes on from there to the other British invasions, bands, you know, the Holy Trilogy of the Beatles, the Ho- Stones and the Who, leading to them to their middle and high school years of Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. But, you know, there is something about them that is different and unique from anything else. And there's the moment for you when it lands. And for me, I'm probably five years old, sitting on the couch, and I hear Rubber Soul. And I don't know why, but everything changed for me at that moment. Interesting. Can I tell you mine, actually? No. Nope. Nope. My show. Uh, no, of course. Show. Yeah, that's right. This t- today's about me. <laughs> Hello. Um, no, of course. Of course. So, um, when I, I forgot about this until recently, actually. When I was a kid, like five years old, my dad took me to uh, a magician at a library because that's what you did back then. And she's like, we're going to see no the internet magician. kids. No, no internet kids. Nope. This is it. And so I re- I'll never forget this. So um, the room goes dark. And then all of a sudden, before the magician goes on, I hear the opening strains to more than a feeling with that guitar intro. Uh, and yeah. I'm captivated, right? And then all of a sudden, when it kicks in, right, I close my eyes and it slips away. Then the guy comes out, a little bit of flash pots, yeah. which is weird, in a library, but it was a 70s. Yes, and yes that would be illegal now because of the books. That's dangerous. And so he comes out, and I don't remember anything about the show, but I turn to my dad and I go, I want to find out what that song was. So we go up to the to the uh, magician, and I'm like, what is that? And he goes, something along the lines of like, you know, well, it's Boston, more than a feeling kid. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. So I turned to my dad, and I said, I want that. He took me to a record store. We bought the 45. I go home. I put the needle on the record, and I'm fascinated because I have control over music at that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm going back and forth and back and forth. And to this day, I can play it right now on my guitar sitting behind me. I love that song. And it was, it inspired me and it kicked off this whole thing for music for me. So the question for you is when you heard the Beatles, when you had that experience, tell me now how, if that carried you through to your current line of work and where that landed. Oh, it's never stopped. There's certain times where in your life, I, I don't know the best way to describe it. This is going to sound like a cliche where a door opens for you. And for me, it was uh, hearing the album Rubber Soul. And the, the funny thing, and I want to be clear, like you're talking about the song more than a feeling. I can't tell you what song it was. It was the experience of the album. Like uh-huh. I picture a five-year-old sitting still for 40 minutes. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> that was me listening to Rubber Soul. Like I, I, it just grabbed me and it turned, I don't know what the right, like, I feel like I'm losing, I'm at loss for, for words here to describe this properly. Um, but anyone who's ever been in, had that connection to any artistic endeavor will understand this. It was like a room in my brain. The light suddenly was turned on and I saw things and thought about things differently. I think part of it was I heard the instruments, which, People who don't play an instrument, I know you play, uh, Jeff, so you know what I'm talking about. It's not just that I heard the song. I heard the instruments. Mm. I could hear that there were four people doing four different things and singing. And this is the original mono recording, so this is not like, you know, it's amazing stereo separation and you can, you know, building a sound field so it sounds like Paul's on my left and John's right. on my right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was. It's a mono recording, so... That sound field doesn't exist in a mono recording, as you know. 
And as younger people who are listening to this, you've never heard a mono recording. Um, you People don't do that anymore. Um, but I suddenly could hear the instruments and hear that it was separate things all working together in a way that even, you know, it's like I didn't grow up before five ever hearing songs on the radio. I mean, I heard music before, um, but something changed. And I was interested in how things come together to make something else, which made me start, you know, watching um, the 430 movie when I would get home from school on uh, Channel 7 in New York um, and seeing like the Planet of the Apes movies or Godzilla movies or whatever was playing when I would get home from school, I started looking at that the same way Hmm. Um, and really connecting to the fact that the guy who plays Cornelius in Planet of the Apes is also the guy in without the makeup on in some movie or TV show that I'd seen. And that's the same guy. Um, and seeing how things come together. And then uh, I, I, another one, I will never forget. I was roughly the same age when they used to have the scholastic book fairs at school, two books that I bought. Um, you already know where one of these is about to go uh, because I was in some monster movies was I bought the novelization of King Kong and Frankenstein. Cause I saw the covers and I was like, I know these. Right. Um, and the King Kong book I loved. It was it was a novelization of the 1931 movie. Um, so it was exactly what I wanted it to be. And I had that thing in my head of how did this become that? How does this book become that movie? Um, I had also gotten Dracula, which I didn't read initially because I loved the Frankenstein movies more. And so as young as I was, I was advanced as a reader. So this isn't crazy that I was reading like Mary Shelley at six. Right. Um, but, uh, I hated it. I hated that book. And I can honestly say in retrospect, looking back, having read the book, um, several times since then, my six-year-old judgment was a hundred percent correct. That book is terrible and it's boring and we're all supposed to not say that, but the book is really boring. It's a, it's not a, it's not really a novel or a story. It's a treatise on humanism. That's what she intended it as. The fact that it's told through this story of a man creating life, everyone leans into like the narrative aspect of it, but that isn't what she was doing. And when you read the book, you're bored out of your mind as the people go into long explanations of philosophy. Mm. And if we're going to be really clear, when the monster goes into Victor's room at the beginning of the book, you know, the first time he awakens and comes into the room, um, if Victor had a five minute conversation with him, nothing else in the book happens. All the monster wants is is those five minutes, and for absolutely no reason, Victor won't give it to him. Other than the monsters, other than the fact that the monster's ugly and he's scared because it's ugly. If the monster had come out good looking, then none of that happens. Victor's super happy with it. Um, But it's the book is about if you're ugly, you're someone finds you unattractive and won't talk to you, um, Mm -hmm. you should be mad. Can we just be honest though that the best uh, Frankenstein movie is John Frankenstein? Please. Oh my God! Oh, old zipper neck! I love that movie. That movie's amazing. Uh, that is what. Oh my God! Werewolf, werewolf, werewolf. Why are you talking that way? Well, oh, I thought you wanted to suit yourself, Marty Feldman. Um, oh my God! One of the greatest comedians ever. Um, <laughs> I ain't got nobody. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> oh my God! I that that movie is stylistically. 
If people haven't seen uh, James Whale's 1931 Frankenstein, stylistically, it matches the style of that movie. Yeah, it does. Um, but it hits every beat of what is happening in the Frankenstein movies and turns the screw from horror to ridiculous in every right way. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. Absolutely. Have you ever, have you ever seen the outtakes of that movie? I know that it's on the DVD and the Blu-ray. I've only seen the clips that were like available online. I, as we were talking about this, it's funny. I was just thinking to myself, I need to see if there's a Criterion version of that or find a version with all of the stuff. I think a lot of them at least are on YouTube. I know that. I've been watching them for a while. Uh, I, that's where I've seen them, things like that. But it's like and you and I are both music fans and music parody fans. Little inside dope uh, Jeff and I both are fans of the Ruddles. If you are a fan of the Beatles, go see the Ruddles movie. If you don't know the story of the Beatles, learn the story of the Beatles first. The more you know the story, the funnier that movie is. Um, but the other great one is Spinal Tap. Yo, of course. Um, and Spinal Tap, the outtakes of Spinal Tap, um, are almost as long as the movie. I did not know that. Yeah, it's insane. It's hours. There's a whole Bruno Kirby segment in the uh, in the limo that's all about Frank Sinatra. He does a riff on Frank Sinatra that is insane. Wow. I think one of my favorite lines in that movie is so subtle when they go, Boston, not a college town. Not a college town, yeah. Yeah, Boston gig's been canceled. I wouldn't worry about it. Not a big <laughs> college town. Not, not a college town. <laughs> or okay, when sure. – uh, wait, it's in that same sequence when they're in the uh, – when they find out they run into that other guy in the lot and he's like, uh, he says two amazing things. I think we're supposed to play the enormo dome or whatever that's called. He says, which right. is like right. such a slap in their face. And he can't talk to them because he's got to go sit around in the lobby. That's, that's right. I got to go over here and sit down. Yeah, I got to go sit around in the lobby. I, I can't, I'd love to stay in chat, but I got to go sit around in the lobby. <laughs> that movie is so classic. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of movies, so I saw that uh, when you were younger, and you kind of referenced this actually, but all the Universal uh, monster movies and the Hammer movies and all that. But I, yeah. but as a kid, I I, I want to talk about one thing for you as well, which I think might have also influenced you to your uh, career, which obviously I want to get into. But it was Stephen King's Salem's Lot, and you made a reference oh. in some interview I read about the boy floating out the window. And he like oh my God. floats through it. I just watched that actually, just for uh, some research. I forgot about that movie with David Soul, and yes. that part was terrifying with that kid. You're right. The, and here's what's crazy: that's a TV movie. I know that that Salem's Lot TV movie is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um, I I put that up there with any '70s era horror movie, mm-hmm. and it's like if you can show that on TV. Why? Why not the Omen back then? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what's in the Omen that's worse than that movie? It's one of the best Stephen King adaptations anyone's ever done. But people, I don't think it gets played now because people. David Soul's not remembered as a big star right now. Right. When Starsky and Hutch was on TV, I don't think people can understand how big of a star David Soul was. Yeah. He even had a song yes, called "Don't Give Up on Us, Baby." Don't give um, up on us, baby. I forgot about that. That's right. Yeah. That movie is unbelievable. It's one of the – it's so good. 
it will scare the crap out of you. It's a mini series. There is a movie version of it that's a cut down. I think you can get on DVD also. But I would recommend to anyone watching who thinks they want to watch it, and everybody should, um, is to try to find the, the whole mini series. Yeah, that flick is that flick is fantastic. So all of this horror stuff that you were into when you were a kid, I I know that a lot of your work um, has been a, a, around the horror genre. Uh, yes. The Scream thing, which I want to get into, obviously, Mimic, you know, there were so many, uh, Night of the Animated Dead, which I absolutely yeah. need to get into. So all that horror stuff. Um, so obviously the Hammer movies, uh, you know, Salem's Lot, all that stuff, watching Godzilla movies, Japanese crazy stuff. I mean, that would obviously influence your later work, correct? And clearly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because it was fun. Uh, a big thing for me in, uh, uh, working on movies. Um, well, I should say this real quick. There's a well-known story of how Dimension Films, the division of Miramax got started in the nineties. And the story is it was Bob Weinstein and two of his assistants. I was one of those two guys. I was the one who walked into Bob's office when um, Dimension was just an acquisitions label and said, we can make these better than what you're acquiring. And I caught him in the right mood. Um, I will say this to any younger people listening. It's really not appropriate to say something like that to your boss. Um, I don't know why I did that. Um, it, I mean, he could have fired me on the spot. Like, what the hell do I know? I'm, tw- I'm 22 years old. He's running a major uh, film studio. Um, and I'm telling him that, I think I can do better than what they're doing. So he he was like, what do you mean? So working with Andrew Rono, the two of us started um, fixing some of the acquired films that were supposed to go direct to video instead of the theater, um, showing them how to make them better. Uh, Bob liked what we were doing. We made those changes. And some of them, like a, a title called God's Army, the title got changed to The Prophecy. Um, that was became a theatrical film. It was supposed to be a direct-to-video title. We worked on the editing, had some new scenes shot and special effects and all of that. But the reason I get into that is because those early films, the stuff that I watched when I was younger, they were fun. Those movies were fun movies to watch. So when I was working at Dimension, my barometer for what is a script that I thought we should do or what was a movie that I thought we should acquire was absolutely based on what would 10, 15, 16 year old Richard want to watch? Would I watch this movie? And there were a lot of scripts or things that came in that I was like, yeah, I wouldn't watch this. This isn't fun. A weird influence on this is if anyone remembers the movie, uh, big, when Tom Hanks becomes a kid, wishes he was big and becomes Tom Hanks and through wackiness, ends up working at a toy company. And one of the toys they're developing is like their version of Transformers. But instead of turning into an airplane or a car, their robot turns into like um, uh, the Empire State Building. Right. <laughs> Everyone's saying it's great, except Tom Hanks, who says... But what's fun about that? What's fun about turning into a building? And that was had been my approach to picking movies we should make. What's fun about that? Um, and so I picked movies that I thought teenage me would want to see and what teenage me and my friends would want to see. 
it wasn't just my taste. I, I had a lot of good friends growing up who were, you know, girls at the time. I know they're women now, but they were girls back then. And I remembered what they liked, and I would have discussions with them. And just in terms of music, one of my neighbors was obsessed with Phil Collins. I liked Phil Collins. Yeah, I mean, like on a whole level. Like, wow. um, if I, it's funny if we could get her on right now, she could probably still do like you know a ten minute bit on how great Phil Collins is. She really loved Phil Collins. So, I I paid attention to what other people liked, um, and tried to kind of see if scripts that were coming in. Um, fit into that it may not be me but you know you know my friend lauren loved phil collins so much and look how many records phil collins selling so people with that taste there's a lot of them uh so i really tried to pay attention to what do people like and what's fun about that um and i think that tom hanks line in that movie what's fun about that that question is something you have to think about if you're doing any endeavor where the goal is to get other people to partake in it, to enjoy it, to watch it, to listen to it, you know. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to the screen uh, world. Um, and I kind of wanted to get into that. I know that you found the script and then I think kind of yes. worked on it a little bit. And when you, before you answer that, the thing I love about that whole world that you, that, that, that you've worked on and helped create and create is that again, it's fun. Like that first opening of Scream with Drew Barrymore, legendary. And it is yeah. fun. It's that sense of like that hammer feeling almost, you know, those old films of being in a darkened theater. And, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Fantastically done. Well, part of the brilliance of that and hats off 100 percent on this to Kevin Williamson, who wrote it, yep. um, is that most of a movie's life is home video now we would say streaming but you know streaming is just a new word for exactly the same thing it's it's home video you're watching it at home so he he recognized that most of the time especially you know in the early 90s when it was still uh vcrs videotapes um and even a little later when it became dvds most people would be watching the movie doing what drew is doing so you're sharing, you're sitting in your house watching someone in their house try to watch a scary movie, which is exactly what you're doing. So you know the experience. And even if you see the movie in the theater, um, you know the experience. You're immediately with her because it's a shared, lived experience. Um, and that that reading the script, when the script arrived the night that it came in, um, you know the story, so I'll, I'll tell it quickly because it's, it's not super important anyway. But it came in with the title Scary Movie. We weren't looking for spoofs. That title sounds like a spoof, and obviously it became the title of a series of spoofs. Um, so it was late at night. Bobby Cohen had gotten – it had been submitted to him. He was on the Miramax side. They don't do horror and comedy. So he handed it to me and said, maybe this is for you guys. He hadn't read it. It was just off the title. And so I was like, I want to leave, but you know what? I'll read a few pages of this. I'll see that it's a stupid spoof and it's not for us. So I started reading it and the opening sequence is obviously Casey Becker's death, Drew Barrymore in the movie. And it scared the crap out of me reading it in my office alone in the dark. Everyone else had left. And I was like, not only is this not a spoof, 
but this is really good. Um, the writing is amazing. So I decided at that moment, I can't go home. I got to finish this right now because there's no way that the whole thing can be at this level. It's not going to stay at this level. So once I get to the point where it turns into crap, I can you know just finish it tomorrow because there's no urgency. And honestly, also, I was really curious how the killer worked because is it something supernatural? How is he at the back door? Then she opens the front door and he's right there because two killers had never been done before. So I hadn't even thought about that as a possibility. Was it some weird supernatural thing like, you know, Michael Myers can never be killed. And then when I got to the end, not only did it not fall apart, not only was the writing quality the whole way through and the story brilliant, but when it was two killers, my mind was blown and I, I was in love with the script. But there's another context to it. Teen movies were not being made at the time. John Hughes had stopped doing what he had been doing um, with his, you know, pretty and pink type movies. And then, uh, so this was a movie for teenagers and I wanted Dimension, which was a new company to, to be able to break through. And I thought a teen movie when there are no teen movies was a way to do it. And one like this, where the teenagers had actually seen other horror movies that didn't exist before the whole Randy character is a Kevin creation. Um, that concept, I mean, I called Bob Weinstein that night. It was a little after 10. And said to him, I just read a script. If you don't want to buy this, then I don't know what you're looking for. And we bought it the following morning. Wow. That's so when you, I got to go backwards for a heartbeat. When you said that um, the script came in, what does that mean? Okay. Um, There's the way the industry worked back then, and to extent, an extent still does today, um, a script is submitted by an agency or a manager to a film production entity, like a production company or a studio. We were a studio. They send you the script to see if you want to buy it to then, you know, hire actors, hire director and make the movie. So it's called a spec script because it's written on speculation. The the writer was not paid. So Scream was a spec script. It went out in Los Angeles at the end of the day there, which was probably five or six o'clock. We're in New York. The New York office, particularly at Miramax at the time, we got there between 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning, East Coast time, and worked till 7 or 8 o'clock East Coast time. So we were in before the West Coast got in, and we left after they left. Um, But normally, I was not still there at 9 o'clock. I don't know why that particular day I was still there, Um, but so was Bobby. And the script came in from the agent to Bobby, and Bobby gave it to me. And one of the things I like to do, and I know Bobby and others did too, was take advantage of the time difference. That if I read something that was, I believe, a Tuesday night, if I read it that night, I'm prepared, you know, at in the morning to potentially make a move on this script. And um, the the West Coast won't even be in yet. Won't even have had an, a a a, um, a meeting. Uh, to discuss the script to see if they'd be interested in it. When they're coming in at nine o'clock to potentially have that meeting, I had that meeting three hours ago. So I'm already calling the agent to buy it, which is what we did. Um, there's a long story about how the purchase went, which we don't need to get into uh, unless you really want to. But the but the we ended up buying it and um, you know changed everything for Dimension. Certainly, you know, changed things for in Kevin's life. It was the the, the thing that Wes Craven needed to relaunch his career, 
Uh, it was just the right place, the right time, the right piece of material. It was just that kismet with everything happened to, to work out. Interestingly, um, I was asked in a recent interview if I thought the movie would get made if I hadn't been at work that night to receive the script. And my answer is 100% yes. The script was just too good. Would it have been that movie? Would it have been Wes Craven? No. It would have ended up in a different place. It wouldn't have been Dimension. It would have been different people doing it. But that movie gets made. That script is too good. How did Wes Craven get on board? I had met with Wes and his producing partner, Marion Maddalena, a year and a half or maybe two years earlier. We were developing a remake of Robert Wise's film, The Haunting, which is based on the novel, The Haunting of Hill House, which got made by someone else later and then turned into a, a brilliant mini series uh, or event series on Netflix uh, directed by Mike Flanagan, who is a super talent and a great, really nice guy, by the way. So um, I knew Wes, the scripts that we got on The Haunting were just, they didn't work. They didn't, whatever that thing is, you can't put your finger on that makes the script the right script. It wasn't there. Um, but I wanted to do something with Wes Craven. I mean, I, I just really liked him when I met him and Marianne is amazing and I wanted to work with them. So the script came in and I sent it to them. Would you want to do this? And Wes said no. And every time I leaned in after we bought it to try to get him to do it, he would say no. Um, and I was talking to Marianne and, um, uh, Julie Pleck, who also worked for Wes at the time, um, saying, this is too good. And they read it and they really liked it too. But Wes had done uh, Freddy's New Nightmare, which yep. he thought was sort of meta and self-reflective in the same way. And he'd already done slasher films. So he just kept saying no. And I just kept saying to him, this isn't – nobody. you haven't done this before. Nobody's done this before. And that absolutely meant nothing to him because I'm the studio trying to convince him to do something. So of course I'm going to say that, right? Uh, right? Like, yeah. Like if it's like I'm a car salesman, and you're like, eh, you know, I have a car, and I'm going, you don't have a car like this, right? <laughs> um, Marianne and Julie convinced him that he had not done this before, and no one had done this before. I mean, I, I my little you know repeated quote that I'm interviewed in the scream interviews which I'm sure you know there's a ton of because it was just the 25th anniversary is there are only two reasons Wes agreed to do that movie and they are Julie Pleck and Marianne Madalena those are the two reasons that Wes did the movie what's interesting to me is now that I think about it that he was saying no 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 and yet you pers- like it's like that Hillary Clinton thing nevertheless you persisted yeah. um he just kept you kept going you kept going why didn't you back off at some point and be like, fuck it, I'm going to go over to somebody else? Well, we were having internal discussions about other directors. I mean, I'm not going to lie and be like, you know, he said no. And so we were like, okay, you know, um, but I, I personally, and Bob Weinstein felt the same way. Um, so I'm not going to like lie and be like, or try to, in the Hollywood way, take credit for everything I was involved with. <laughs> Bob and I both, we're like, it has, it's got to be Wes. It's got to be Wes Craven. Um, we would sit in his office. I would sit you know, across from him and we'd make our list of directors of what about this person? What about that person? And it was funny, no matter how many times we had this discussion for days and weeks of lists of, and then check availabilities and this and that, it was always, if Wes is still saying no. I don't know why we were both always saying only if Wes is still saying no. If you go 
to any director now, even back then, and say, do you want to direct this this script? And they say, no, that's a pass. You move on. I, I don't know why, for some reason, Bob and I both just kept, kept having the conversation of, well, if he's still saying no. It's just weird. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, I got to go backwards for a heartbeat, too. Um, I kind of heard you reference the idea, and it's obviously true, that when you're in the industry, be it, and I've noticed this too, not just film, but also music as well, because I worked, you know, as I mentioned, in that world for a long time. Like success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. Yes. I, yeah. I noticed that with uh, with Beck. I had a lot of friends of mine um, who, who kind of worked in the in the Beck, you know, the, the musician, obviously, kind of in yes. that world. And everybody's always like, I signed Beck. I found Beck. I did this with Beck. It's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> Right. So here's what I really want to get into as well, because this is kind of like part of the. Can I pause you for a quick second? I I always try when talking about Scream in particular. First of all, a lot of people have taken credit um, over the years for finding or developing that script, and everyone who says they developed the script is lying. I even will not say I developed that script. There are a few changes between the spec script that we received and the script that got made, but it is largely the script we received. We didn't develop it. Kevin and Wes and amongst all of us, there were notes and some changes, but nobody developed that script. All credit goes to Kevin Williamson for writing a brilliant script. And if we had shot the script I received that night, um, the differences would not be very major. Um, And the other thing is when the stories eventually other people involved which I honestly appreciated started making it clear that I was the one who actually read the script. When I gave it to Bob, there was no one else in the room because I gave it to him at his apartment building. I gave it to his doorman that that night. There was no one trying to convince me to give it to him and all that. However, there are other people who, for example, Bobby Cohen, step one in the sale of, or the, the story of scream getting made, Step one is not me. Step one is Bobby Cohen. And every time I've been interviewed about it over the years, I always say Bobby Cohen got the script and gave it to me. Hmm. And then I read the story and the story says, Richard got the script. And I did, but I got it from Bobby. If Bobby doesn't give me the script, it doesn't happen this way. So I feel like Bobby is a, is a you know, he's the, 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 sort of forgotten or not even forgotten. I feel like sometimes intentionally ignored piece. Bobby gave me the script. Bobby Cohen is the person. I'm the one who read it. I'm the one who got Bob to do it. All true. But if Bobby doesn't hand me the script, I don't read it. I don't give it to Bob. None of that happens. Right. And that's great. That's the kind of stuff that a lot of people don't say. So congratulations. Right. No, no, but it's true. Like, like you're saying, like, you know, we work in an industry where everyone's, everyone wants credit for the good things they were a part of. And I do want people to, you know, recognize my part. I'm not going to pretend I don't have an ego. Everyone has some kind of ego. You know, I, I worked on and then had to develop Scream 2 and all of that. But that doesn't mean I did everything. And it doesn't mean that other people didn't do things or have pieces of the story that are important. And I notice very much when I see stories about how Scream came to be or how Dimension happened, I'm always amazed to be able to read those stories and my name is not in it. Or a story about like the stories of the issues early on in filming when 
Bob Weinstein didn't like how the opening was looking. So there had to be a screening and all this other stuff that got resolved and everything moved forward. And people, a few specific people whose names I won't say, um, always tell the story and somehow I'm not in it. Hmm. And I'm always like, when they talk about Bob was calling and he was really upset about whatever, I'm always like, I'm sorry, who was he calling? He wasn't calling you. A screening was set up. Who set up that screening? Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't understand. Like, I just don't get it. Making a movie, I will say this to anyone listening, making a movie or a TV show is a team sport. It is not a solo thing. Auteur directors, in my opinion, don't exist. The auteurs have a team around them. And if you look at the credits on their stuff, they always work with the same people because they've built a great team. And if you're going to try to do any creative endeavor other than, you know, I guess, painting or sculpting where it is a solo thing, you need a great team around you and you need to recognize and for yourself and recognize them as publicly as you recognize yourself that everyone contributed. Everyone contributed. Wes Craven used to say to people that the resurgence in in teen films was because of me. He used to say that. I was there when he said it. He at one time said it to a girlfriend of mine, someone I was dating, that this was all because of me. I've never seen it in print anywhere. He gets credit for doing it, but he was crediting me. Wow. What a great guy. Oh, amazing. And whatever, like, pick an idol like from your list of idols that you would say, oh, I wish I could have had a chance to work with this, the person. And then they turn out to be everything you could have hoped for and more than that. That was Wes. This was not the typical story of don't meet your heroes because they're going to disappoint you. Wes was amazing. He would do something where like we would shoot something and he would turn to me and go, what do you think? And in my head, I'm going, why are you asking me? You're Wes Craven, you know? Exactly. (laughs) But Wes understood that, you know, it's a team sport. Yeah, actually, I have a very similar story. I will kind of jump into uh, real quickly here. And that is that I used to work with Neil Young over Warner Brothers. Yeah. Um, for about two or three years and I was doing marketing and he would call, it was the same thing. He would call me sometimes and be like, what do you think of this video that I made? I'm like, what the fuck right. are you asking me for Neil Young? Right. Do you, do you know that you're Neil Young? Like you say, you want to say to him, did you know that you're Neil Young? Well, okay. Funny. You should bring that right. up. I will just, I'll make this real quick. So at Warner brothers, well, the artist never called the label, right? That's why you have a manager, how it works. But, um, so when I first got the project, cause someone was just like, you're doing Neil Young now for digital marketing. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Great. So, yeah. the, but Neil liked to call the label himself. So here's what happened. So one day I'm on the phone or I just, uh, I, I pick up the phone and I'm like, Hey, this is Jeff. And hey, this is Neil. And I said, Neil who? And he said, yeah. Neil Young. And I said, who the fuck is this? Cause I'm thinking <laughs> it's some jackass friend of mine. Of course. Of course. And then he says, Neil Young. And then suddenly, like, the rusted gears in my head went click, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, and I've never been I've never been fanboy in my life at the at the label, intentionally so. I don't want to creep anybody out. But, like, my amygdala. Right. You're, my everyone's amygdala, supposed to see you as an equal. You're working together. Exactly. However, my amygdala midbrain thing just kicked in, and I went – and I went on a 30-second, like, just just spew. And I'm like, oh, my God, uh, Old Man, It's the Greatest Song. And after the gold rush, you got to be kidding me. And I did, like, trans and da-da-da-da-da. And 30 seconds into this, he goes, yeah, yeah. anyway, kid. <laughs> like, yeah. What he wanted, you know? Um, yeah. 
But one last thing, actually, just on a complete side note, is that when I got the project, someone said, well, do you want to meet Neil tomorrow? And I'm like, of course. And he says, well, they're going to be uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young are rehearsing over at SIR in L.A. Do you want to meet them there? Of course I do. So as I walked into this giant hall where they're rehearsing for the upcoming tour, it's the four of them singing a cappella, harmonizing, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. And walking into that room was a sound of God, right? That is and amazing. Then I'm I got so jealous meet. right now. Oh, my God. He was such a sweet guy. Um, he wrote me a lot of – I went through some weird shit about eight years ago, and he wrote me this beautiful letter where he quoted Bob Dylan for me and everything. But he was an exception, unfortunately, for some of the people that I worked with. But that's fine. I don't – Yeah, but it's funny that you say that story because just how everything that goes wrong with a movie is because of the studio. In the music world, the reason – one of the reasons why the, the, the manager calls the label instead of the artist is because every time something goes wrong, the artist is going to say it's because the label blah, blah, blah. Sure. Totally. Uh, the label is there to be responsible for everything that went wrong, but everything that went right is because the artist is a genius. Totally true. <laughs> but in this case, Neil, Neil Young is clearly a genius. I also learned very early just the, the way to work with Neil is to get out of his way. Well, but, but I was going to say, guys like that understand that you're not the enemy and that the key to success, like how I was saying making a movie is a team sport, is collaboration. If he gets smart enough, and he was, to get you on board with what he was doing, even just by asking you what he thinks, which is, I'm sure, part of what Wes was doing. Yeah. Get me to like it. What do you think, Richard? I can't then say to Bob, I hate that. I was standing next to him and told him I loved it. Sure. But he makes you feel like a collaborator, that you're working with him, and that engenders not just friendship, but a feeling of goodwill and a feeling of being part of a team. Um, and the smart artists, Neil Young in that example, Wes in mine, understand that. Correct. And there's that old line of never be the smartest guy in the room. Right. I but I will say this to anyone to anyone listening. Um, you want to get into as many conversations as you can about music with Jeff. It's they're the best conversations. Oh, uh, thanks, man. Yeah, I was on. Um, it's, a, it's true. I love talking to you. I love talking to you. Oh, thanks, buddy. I really but, appreciate it. And we don't really know each other that well for the people, anyone who hears this. This is our second ever conversation, true. followed by a few emails that true. became absolutely hilarious because <laughs> I think we share a brain. Kind of do. Kind of do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and perhaps some other time I can tell you about the time that I harmonized with an Everly brother at an Olive Garden. That's oh, my God. Yeah. That's, that's a, in fact, I'll make this that's one quick. Awesome. I'll make it real quick. So um, my uh, my late wife and I went to Nashville about 10 years ago, and we were uh, – it turned out it was her, her last birthday. So we had a mutual friend, and we were all going to go out to dinner and celebrate my wife's birthday. And then she, my friend goes, do you want to have Phil, uh, Phil Everly come into the birthday party? He's friends with me. Yes, of course. And so I thought, okay, he's going to pick the restaurant. Great. And I'm thinking steak dinner. I'm thinking big deal. He goes, now nah, we're going to Olive Garden. Okay. So yeah. go to Olive Garden. It's also his wife. Uh, the, he passed away, unfortunately, but his wife is still alive. Patty, she, she was a stand-up comedian, hilarious lady. So about five of us all get there. He walks in with sweats on because he's Phil Everly. He can. He Everybody knows him at the restaurant. Hey, Phil. How you doing, Phil? How you doing, Phil? He gets his usual order. Doesn't even have to order because he goes there yeah. all the time. 
I sit next to him, right? And I'm like, I'm going to get stories out of this guy. So I did. He's the guy's a legend. So I got stories yeah. about Beatles. I got stories about Jimi Hendrix. I got stories about James Brown. It was just like nonstop. Um, so at the end of all this, uh, someone brought a cake out and we all stood up to sing my wife happy birthday. And I'm standing next to him and I think, holy shit, I can harmonize right now with this guy on the, on the happy birthday song. <laughs> no one's going to know, but I did. I fucking did it. And I harmonized with the Neverly brother. It was amazing. That's a that's oh that's great. I'm I'm so jealous of that, and I love that, and I'm glad that that happened for you that you got to do that. But I have to ask you this: when someone says to you, "Do you want Phil Everly there?" Don't you want to say to the person, "Does anyone ever say no to that?" Like, wh- why is that a question? It's what I said, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who would say no to that? <laughs> he was- Do you want Phil Everly there to sing "Happy Birthday" to your wife? No, I'm good. Nah. Like, no. Or worse yet, who's Phil Everly? Right. Um, okay, so I, I, I want to move on. God, you're a great guy. Um, I do want to talk about Thank the you. night. Thank I want to talk about Night of the Animated Dead because okay. I'm a big fan, obviously, of horror. I'm a big fan of Night of the Living Dead. I'm a big fan of Return of the Living Dead, the punk rock version that came out in like that mid 80s. Yeah. Um, yeah and you know that, obviously. I watched Yes, and by the way, I will say also to anyone listening, if you want, just want a fun movie, you don't. Have, it doesn't have to be a great movie to be fun. It just has to be fun to be fun. See that movie. It, it is just fantastic. It's fun. It's still, you will have so much fun. You, it's not Citizen Kane. It doesn't have to be. You can still like it. You, you don't have to. We don't need movie snobs, which there are too many of. I agree. hundred percent. A good movie. There are only two genres in film: good and bad. Those are the two genres. If you I, like it, it's good say that all the time. I always say I like 2% of music and 98% I don't. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, so Night of the Animated Dead was such a great premise because uh, for those listening, it's an outlet, obviously the creator discussed this, but as a setup, it's Night of the Living Dead, classic film, animated, clearly, right, in yes. the title, yes. but with the original audio synced up with it. I thought no, that's not. It's not the original audio. Those are actors. Oh no, you're right. I'm sorry. You're right. I, I apologize. You're absolutely it's right. The original dialogue. It's original, the original dialogue. dialogue. We, yes. I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. Where did that come from? You know what? You know what? You got it wrong. I'm hanging up on you right now. Click. You can't use my interview. It's over. Done. You know what? Well, our friendship is actually over now. The whole thing. That. The whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? You don't even exist in my world anymore. You are um, in Hollywood. Yes, in Hollywood, by the way, either you someone doesn't exist for you or a person you met for a second at a party is your best friend. Best friend, oh, yeah. Best friend that guy, yeah. I'll say to people sometimes, Jeff's my actual friend. He's not a Hollywood friend. There um, you go. You know, like that. Like, this is an actual friend of mine. It's not right. – I mean, I really – I can actually call him and he knows who I am. Right. Um, <laughs> um, so how did that come about? Um it's a weird secured, circuitous – I can't speak today – circuitous thing. There is a copyright error on the original film. Um, the film is not copyrighted. Um, I don't know if that recently was fixed. I heard of some rumor that it was. But for the past like uh, 50 years, anyone can remake Night of the Living Dead. Huh. Um, and that's why there are so many terrible versions and why it's been remade a hundred times or whatever. So I was approached by a producer named Michael Luisi. Because he, with a group of other guys, had made a deal with Warner Brothers to make an animated version of Night of the Living Dead. Um, 
And the first step was they needed a script, but they don't need a script. They need really a transcript. Like they were like, we need someone to write it, but it has to be the original movie to fit within this copyright issue thing. And I'm also a writer, Mm -hmm. Um, but I was like, you don't, you don't need a script. What you need is that movie in script format. You don't need a script. So I sat with a, uh, uh, a DVD of the movie trying to figure out how do I get like trying to type it as they said it. And then this is the best when you realize that somebody's already done it, done it. And you're like, I'm an idiot. Right. I turned on the subtitles. Ah, there's the script. Right. Right. (laughs) There it is. So I just write the word Ben and then pause the screen and type up whatever Ben just said. Really? Um, Yeah, that's it. That was, that was, that was the whole process. I mean, it took a long effing time. Sure. Um, that's a very arduous pro, you know. And then, you know, uh, I found some versions of the script that Romero and Russo had written. Um, and they weren't accurate, but they had the just some versions of the descriptions in it. So I didn't have to write, like, I didn't write a script. Huh. You know, right. for any WGA people listening, I did not write a script. Um, <laughs> so um, it's, it's their script. Uh, I just had to transcribe it. Um, but the part of the idea of it, of doing it animated and in color, came out of really a love for Romero, mm. a love for what he did, and a recognition that if you talk to people in their teens and 20s now, they've never seen it. And when you talk to them about it, um, I think you and I talked about this in one of our previous conversations, their reaction is, it's a long black and white movie. Mm. So they're not going to see it. We were like, let's try to do what Romero couldn't do for budget reasons, which meant like, you know, there's only like six or eight actors in the entire movie. So some of the people who are the ghouls, by the way, they're called ghouls in the movie. They're never called zombies. The ghouls outside are also the actors who are inside. Um, It's the same people. There's a few extra ones, but like you're supposed to feel like the whole town is being taken over. And the most you see is like seven or eight, you know, so we're going to do overhead shots where you see hundreds of them we're going to um take ben's description of what happened to him at the um uh at the diner Mm -hmm. and use his description and show that Mm -hmm. so you get to see some things that you've never seen right but it's like we're not creating anything original for people who've seen the movie the original it's now the story ben told is visual let's be honest if if romero could have shot it he would have but, you know, he had whatever it was, a few days and a house to shoot in. So the idea was to do it in color, show violence and gore that he couldn't show, show things that he alluded to but couldn't do, and be as accurate to the movie as we could. Because it's, it's really a tribute to his movie. So, like, the car that they're driving at the beginning, yeah. uh, myself and the director, Jason Axon, did a ton of research and found that exact model car and images of it. I researched what the color of the paint was so that we got the color of the paint right. We found photos, not just of the interior of that model, but photos of the interior of that specific car. And when you see the movie, that's the interior of that car. We found color stills from the production so we could see what their colors, their clothes were, since it's a black and white film. And that's what color their clothes are in the movie. The the helicopter that lands, we Mm -hmm. found out what kind of helicopter they used. What kind of microphone was the uh, reporter holding? Really? And got, got those, yes, and got those images to the um, animators 
so that everything in the movie is George. It's the stuff from George Romero's movie. The truck is the same truck. We didn't mess with anything. But then, like, for example, I showed the movie to my 12 year old nephew who's never seen Night of the Living Dead. And he was blown away. He loved it. And of course, the movie comes out. We go straight to Amazon to see, you know, what are people saying about it? Like user reviews. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because most of the professional reviews and the early user reviews were all overwhelmingly negative. What they were reviewing was the concept of remaking Night of the Living Dead. Ah. Another unnecessary remake. This is a classic film. Why would somebody do this? Blah, blah, blah. Right. So we were at like, you know, one star because you can't give less than one star. Right. (laughs) And what we started to notice was over time, the reviews are starting to move. Like, I think it's at 4.1 right now, which is about where it should live. It's not a five-star movie. It's not perfect. Mm -hmm. But it's like a four-star movie. The reviews from fans, like the average person watching it, they really enjoy it. They, it makes some people go, I want to go back and rewatch the original. It makes people say, I've never seen the original now. I want to see it. Um, people talk about the ending, which I have to say, other than adding a few beats after the real ending moment, that is the ending of the original movie. We wanted people to be able to revisit this amazing piece of, of cinema history. We want them to come back and want to watch it and experience this. And unfortunately, because it's a over two-hour, really slow-moving black-and-white movie, they don't. They won't watch it. The modern audience won't watch it. So how do you get them to do it? And we, that was the point of this, to say we love you, George Romero, and people should be seeing your movie. Oh, it's a love letter. It absolutely is a love letter to George Romero. I'm sorry if that got really long winded, but that no. movie like was a la- real labor of love to 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 something to be able to make a tribute to someone, an idol of yours, someone who who created a genre. Like those movies don't exist before him. I mean, this movie is so significant historically. I, I don't mean Night of the Animated Dead is historically significant. I mean Night of the Living Dead is the original, and this, you know. Of course. And, you know, I will say this too, just kind of wrap this up a little bit like this, because this has been an amazing interview, but that's exactly why it's a good way to close it actually, because this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you about that particularly. I, I singled this night of the animated dead out because I realized passion project. And this whole thing is yeah. about the inspiration. This whole thing is about the muse. The entire show is about that exact concept of this passion project. So when I saw that you did Night of the Animated Dead, not only am I obviously a big horror fan and a fan of pop culture in general, but I went, that's a twist. Something happened there. And the fact that it's a love letter to Romero is poetic and beautiful. So thank you for that. Oh, no. Thank you for understanding why we did it. Like when people would would write these really nasty comments, and by the way, always directed at Jason, the director, which is funny because as you said, um, you know, whether it's a success or a failure, who gets the blame and who gets whatever. So everyone always typically, usually the director gets the credit if it's good, but everyone gets the crap if it's bad. Yeah. Um, in this case, they directed all the venom at Jason for having done it. And it's like, we hired Jason, like blame us. Right. If you're going to blame anyone, but also why are you blaming anyone? This is not, we're not attacking George Romero. We're not trying to, to, you know, I don't know, capitalize on him or whatever. We're trying to say, we love this. 
We want to introduce it to a newer audience so they can love it too. Yeah. I, I, I think that's absolutely beautiful. And again, that's the whole theme. So Wait, let me just throw this out to you please. as a musician. Please. People think you start, you and I were both musicians earlier in our lives. Yep. People think you start out playing covers to learn how to play. And that I'm going to say is 20% true. Yes. You, you've never written a song. So if you're going to learn how to play your instrument, you learn the basics, then you apply it to songs that exist. But when you go out and become a cover band, which is what every band starts out as, you're playing the songs you love. Yes. You're playing that song because you love it. Yes. You don't choose your set list based on, I think people in bars want to hear, no, because you you have to rehearse this. You're going to spend, you know, for that hour and a half that you get to be on stage, um, if you're lucky enough to play for that long, it's usually, as you and I know, 20 minutes. Yep. You're playing songs that you've rehearsed to death because you love playing that song. It's a great Every point. cover is a tribute to the person who wrote and performed that song. And real inspiration comes from the fact that you love this thing. You, no one is inspired because they're miserable. <laughs> true. It's, that's true. Despite what people think, especially in music with depressed people. I'm, I, I, to be honest with you, I'm actually remembering my high school cover band where we covered uh, like Don't Change by NXS or She Sells yeah. Sanctuary by The Cults. And you're, you're right, oh. like The Clash, like the, all those songs for me. Are you sure you and I weren't in the same band? Like, look at the <laughs> pictures. Who's playing the drums behind you? Is it me? Ah, probably. Probably at this point. Yeah. Although, strangely enough, I just realized this, actually. I am going to go see the drummer in my old high school cover band tonight in a, a at a show where I'm at here. So, can't wait. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Can't wait. Well, listen, man, this has been fantastic. So here's what we're going to do to kind of close this up. Uh, I always do this this way. We're going to uh, pretend to hang up. We're going to pretend to say goodbye, actually. And then after that, I'm going to pretend to hang up. And then we're just going to keep talking to sew this up together. Deal? Yeah, anything you want. Perfect. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, thanks, man, R- Mr. Richard Potter. Mr. Richard Potter, I said. Thanks for, thanks for having me. This was so much fun. I hope I didn't talk and bore people. but I don't think you did. And honestly, dude, it's and you know this. This is more about you and I talking. It's always about me and the yeah. interview we're talking. And people want to listen to it. Cool. You know? Um, well, you and I could do a whole series of these. Just I so enjoy talking to you. I'm not uh, – I'm, I ain't mad at that. So we're going to pretend uh, mm-hmm. to say goodbye. So uh, thank you, man. Thank you so much, really, for doing this. Uh, you're a hell of a guy. And uh, we can oh, do an entire you. episode on the Ruddles and Planet of the Apes. So Which you say should. goodbye, and then we'll go from there. Well, then, thank you for having me, Jeff. Goodbye to you. Goodbye to all the listeners. I hope that you enjoyed this, and I hope that you get something out of it, and that each of you ends up truly inspired. All right. Ooh, I like that. One, two. We're going to hang up and click.